The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now we come to our message for today from God's Word. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. In March of this year, faced with a growing health crisis, the governor of our state issued an executive order that all non-essential businesses must shut down. Now, as you know, churches were put into the category of non-essential public activities, and our church, almost with all the other churches across the state, shuttered their doors and held no services. Now, I don't want to rehash all of that today and speculate on how the shutdown impacts uh, our Constitution and our individual rights and our freedoms. I don't want to discuss whether the virus is as dangerous as they claimed that it is or if those who defied the government ban was right or wrong. Regardless of what we think on those issues, we find ourselves where we are And I think we've had maybe four services since March, and those were consecutive weeks in the middle of July. And even the most spiritual among us would have to admit that the lockdown of churches has taken a heavy toll on God's people. Sonoma County has stayed in a lockdown longer than any other California county. Some uh, churches in our county have held services, but those are... Uh, outdoors, they were able to because of places where they were, where they can, where they are, they can hold outdoor services. But my position has been that our location is not conducive to outdoor services with bordering on uh, one of the busiest streets in our city and then without an adequate buffer between us and our neighbors. And so I had hoped that we would see some improvement by now and we would be permitted to resume services, at least maybe the way that we did in July when the shutdown was relaxed, but that hasn't happened. And so as each week goes by, I I, I believe that there is great harm to the spiritual welfare of our church, and I'm afraid that it could have serious long-term effects. But we do have new hope because of two prospects. The first is the Supreme Court ruling that New York's shutdown of Churches infringed on First Amendment rights. Then the second, of course, is the development now of a vaccine for the virus. But meanwhile, here we are without church, and our subject is Christian warfare. And the discouragements of this warfare are brought sharply into focus in today's message. Uh, There are six pieces of the Christian armor in Ephesians 6. And the apostle says that we must put on every piece of this armor to take our stand against Satan and his wicked, powerful allies. Now, these six pieces of armor are not the full extent of what Christians must do, but they are representative and they make the point that we are in a full scale war. And we must have confidence that we're ready for the fight and we will prevail. Thus far, we've discussed four pieces of this armor. First is the belt of truth. And that is the preparedness of our lives through 
steadfastness and consecration and faithfulness. It's to be sincere in our calling. It's adherence to the objective truth of the scripture as we make them the rule of faith and practice for our lives. Next is the breastplate of righteousness. And this is the imputed and the imparted righteousness of Christ that's given to every believer. It's the protection of the vitality of the Christian life that it's not dependent. Our our life is not dependent on our goodness, but on the perfect righteousness of our Lord. The shoes of the gospel are third. These shoes are the gospel foundation of our faith. We stand on the gospel, which is the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. The gospel is the plan for warfare. We are in defense of the gospel, but we also advance with the gospel. Fourthly is the shield of faith. Spurgeon said that this shield is the defense for our defense. It covers other parts of the armor. And this is the faith by which we live. This is not saving faith because all Christians have saving faith. This is living faith. It's the ability to always trust God, especially when we know that the enemy is too big and too fierce for us to handle in our own strength. It's also our trust in God that he is always right and we are to surrender to his ways. Now, the shield of faith is our confidence in Christ, who is the object of our faith. He's the object both of our saving faith and also our living faith. Now, today we discuss the fifth part of the armor. This is the helmet of salvation. And I want you to understand what the apostle means by salvation, because the study of this part hits home for Christians who are battle weary. When you're tired of this pandemic, when you are weary of the fight, when you are discouraged with the progress, when everything seems to be a setback, this is when you need to be sure to put on the helmet of salvation. It is the helmet of hope. Now, we look in our text at Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll begin reading today at verse number 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand, withstand, in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And before I begin our exposition, I I want to remark that this sermon is sort of a summation, a gathering of concepts that you've heard me preach many times. This is familiar territory, and I think that you'll readily recognize most of these themes. But they are important for us to rehearse. And this is often the Bible's method Uh, The method is to repeat and repeat and repeat until Bible themes become second nature. Our growth in sanctification is dependent upon how much Bible doctrine is ingrained into us so that this doctrine, the Bible, becomes our way of life. It is our life so that we don't need to think 
too much about it and research every time that we encounter a problem. Now, as Peter wrote, we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and to always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is in us. And this hope is what I want to talk to you about today. Then a second comment that I would like to make is about commentaries. Uh, We're blessed to have many good commentaries that are written by good, learned, able men. And the preachers that I trust use the same commentaries that I use. And I found that expositions of this text are uniform. I'm not surprised when I hear another preacher preach from this text and his sermons are just hardly different from the main points that I have in my own. So my exposition of this may sound familiar because I won't give you anything novel that I don't think that the text supports. Christian warfare is a common experience and the way we fight this war is the same for all of us. Now, as I said, the helmet of salvation is needed for battle-weary Christians. And in my introduction, I acknowledge that this year has made us battle-weary Christians. I've expressed my concerns that I am fearful for weak church members that can't hold on and fall by the wayside. And that happens in the good times, so I think we fully expect it will probably happen in the bad times. And the truth is, there is no reason to falter or fail. There is no reason for any Christian to be left behind and for any church member not to hold out and to be anxious and ready to go at the first word that our church is uh, allowed to meet again. We can stand. The Bible says that we can stand. We have a certain hope that keeps us going and keeps us fighting and guarantees our success. Now, there are Many points to be made about our salvation. And I could make this an exposition of how a person comes to Christ. And that would take us deep into the doctrine of saving faith. Ephesians chapter 1 is about God's electing grace. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, we read about the sinner's depravity and God's gift of faith to believe the gospel. And those are favorite doctrines and they're a marvelous study. The electing, effectual calling and the saving grace of God. That is the very reason that I am able to stand here before you today. Those are good subjects. But that is not the main point when Paul speaks of a helmet of salvation. Now to understand what he means by this term, we must think about the times and about the conditions that these Christians lived in when Paul wrote this letter. They were persecuted. They lived in one of the most idolatrous cities in the Roman Empire. And as I mentioned in the last sermon, there was a heathen temple in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They worshipped the goddess Diana. And this worship was the heart and soul of much of the enterprise in the city. Now, the temple was like a tourist attraction and much of the commerce of the city was based on travelers that came through and spent their money on trinkets and souvenirs that were sold by the silversmiths as they made little idols of the goddess and replicas of the temple. You can think of it this way. How much uh, of an attraction would San Francisco be without the Golden Gate Bridge? And without cable cars and Alcatraz and Coit Tower and the Presidio and many other famous landmarks. A trip to Fisherman's Wharf would give you an idea of all of this. Uh, 
all the thousands of souvenirs that are sold. There are keychains and there are, there are t-shirts and there are sweatshirts and calendars and photos and pins of all the famous landmarks in San Francisco. Well, now suppose that people stop buying all of those items. And because of the pandemic, tourism in San Francisco is down and there aren't as many people as possible buying all of these souvenir items and the merchants, of course, lose their incomes and livelihood. And this is what happened in Ephesus, only the cause wasn't a pandemic, it was a person. It was Paul who came preaching the peace of the gospel of Christ. And people were saved and they began to throw away their trinkets that they used for worshiping the goddess. And so the economy of the silversmiths who made those things suffered. The icon business, the idol business was depleted and the merchants were none too happy. And so there was an uproar in the city. It was against Paul and against the believers of the church, this church that Paul started. And Paul was driven out of the city, but the church was still there and they were in persecution. And this was just a taste of what they went through. The tendency of Rome was to blame all Christians for all the troubles of the empire. They were persecuted on all sides. And after months of constant hatred and battling, and after months of suffering, they tired. They were weary. But they kept on living lives of faithfulness. But nevertheless, the troubles didn't stop. Well, finally, it came to the point that Their enemies peppered them with questions. Why do you go through this? You believed a lie. Why do you believe this lie? Look what it's done to you. And I suppose there are there were those who scoffed, just as Peter describes in Second Peter. And they said, you believe in Jesus? Where is he? What happened to this promise that you've been preaching about that he's coming back? He isn't coming back. It's all a lie. Nothing has changed in every Thing goes on just as it did the day before. And so these Christians were buffeted day by day and they were tired in their faith. And Paul knew it. He could feel it. Just as I feel your weariness after months of disappointments. Paul knew what they faced. And into this feeling of hopelessness. Paul injected the concept of Christian warfare and of the Christian armor. And he tells them, you need to put on the helmet of salvation. And what he means is this. You need to have your hope revived. You need a helmet of hope. You need to think about the outcome of your salvation and the reason you need to hold on. Well, there is a scripture in 1 Thessalonians that helps our understanding. We looked at this in our study of uh, the two letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, When this pandemic started, we... And before the shutdown, we were in a study of First and Second Thessalonians, and I suspended that, thinking that we would be back in church soon. But it's been a long time, and when we finish this study of Christian warfare, we will go back to that, regardless of whether we are in or out. But that's been about nine months ago, and you may need to be refreshed and reminded on the subject matter of First and Second Thessalonians. The subject is living in the light of Christ's return. And it's about sanctification and how we are to daily live by faith. Those two letters are about the hope that Christ will return and how we use that hope as the carrot that's out in front of us as the prize to claim 
that keeps us strong and standing in the faith. Now, I want to show you this scripture that directly relates to our subject today. Now, in chapter four of 1 Thessalonians, Paul spoke of those who died in Christ. He said they are fallen asleep. They were persecuted. Many died because of their faith. Then he goes on to talk about living believers. And he said the Lord will return and he will raise the dead and the living will go up too. They won't die, but they will go up with the dead when they are resurrected. And both will go to be with the Lord forever. And you remember how he ended that section? He said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, that's what we're talking about. It's the comforting hope that Christ will return and end all of these troubles. And if he shouldn't return before we die, we know that our spirits will go to heaven and then our bodies will be resurrected when he comes. Well, going on into chapter five of first Thessalonians, this is what I want you to see. And this is in verse number eight. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, there you see the armor. This is the same armor that he speaks of in Ephesians 6. The helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. And that's the key to Ephesians 6, 17. But what is this salvation? Well, it's not initial salvation that's brought by belief in Christ. It's the future salvation of being forever with Christ. So let's break this down into the familiar themes that I spoke of earlier What does Paul mean? Well, first is the hope of final salvation. The hope of final salvation. Now, once again, the helmet of salvation is not our initial salvation. As believers, we were saved when we put our faith in Christ. He doesn't need to tell us to put on that helmet. We've got it. We've always we will always have it. But because we have initial salvation does not mean there is no more salvation to be had. Oh, the Bible teaches that salvation is ongoing and we will finally reach its conclusion. The end of salvation is not now and we don't see it now. And there are some who resist this teaching that salvation is not over with once you believe. But I can show you that this is true. In Romans chapter 13, Paul expounds the subject of ongoing salvation. In the 11th verse of that chapter, he writes, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Now you can see there that he makes a distinction between initial salvation, that is when we believed, And the nearer salvation that is brought about by the passage of time. Salvation is not just the one-time experience that happens when you put your faith in Christ. Now, yes, we all agree that is the life-changing moment. But salvation doesn't stop at that moment. Salvation has other steps. The hope of salvation is that in each moment that passes... You are one step closer to the final salvation of eternity with Christ. Now, Paul wrote to Roman believers that were saved sometime in the past. 
And he says, now that time has gone by, you are closer to Christ than when you believed. And you can think of dying. You ever heard anyone say that you are never closer to death than you are now? This is the concept. You're closer to being with Christ than you were yesterday. And tomorrow you'll be closer yet. Now, the goal of salvation, and Jesus said this himself, the goal of it is to bring us to the Father. And he didn't mean in a spiritual relationship only, but that we will meet God face to face and we will be in his presence forever. Now, when the Bible says that your faith will end in sight, this is what it means. Faith is the substance of our unseen hope. Now, one day you won't need faith because you'll see what before you couldn't see. This is your hope realized. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks of the tenses of salvation. This is the 18th verse of 1 Corinthians 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And the translation of the last part of that verse is, but unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the verb there is one of continuing action, that salvation is more than just one point in time. Well, let's try to understand this better. And to do so, I I want to review some information I've given you before. How is the salvation of Ephesians 6.17 and the salvation of 1 Corinthians 1.18 more than initial salvation when we put our faith in Christ? Well, the answer to that question is that salvation has tenses. Now, first then is our past salvation. This is our justification. Now, if you hold up your hand and say that you are a Christian, then we can agree that there was a moment in the past when you trusted Christ. It was then in the past that you were justified from your sins in the past. Christ's righteousness was transferred to you in the past. His righteousness was credited to your spiritual account and you were justified from your sins. The guilt of sin for which you were condemned was taken away and that was in the past. Now, if you understand justification correctly, you know that it's a one time event. You don't need to be continually justified. It's over. You believe and it's done. Well, now we know that Paul can't be talking about what was done in the past when he says in Romans that your salvation is nearer than when you believed. Have you ever read anywhere in the scripture where it says your justification is nearer than it was? No, no, because it's done. That's accomplished. That's over with. We know that he can't be talking about putting on the helmet of salvation in the sense of justification because that's done. You have it. You can't take it off and then put it back on. If you could, your salvation would always be in danger. You might die with your helmet off. No, if you believe, you will never die without justification. That's because the penalty of your sins has been forever taken away. Well, next is our present salvation and this is our sanctification your present salvation is where you are at this moment in the present you are being sanctified and this is your salvation from the power of sin now first you were saved from the penalty of sin that's your justification and now you're being saved from the power of sin 
And isn't that the definition of sanctification? Aren't you learning to be holier by dismissing from your life everything that doesn't look like Christ? And as you yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in you, isn't the power of sin diminished? That's happening right now as you live for Christ. The believer's present life, that's what we're studying. And Christian warfare is about this sanctifying process. Now, what Satan tries to do is to bring you back under the bondage of sin. But the Holy Spirit is always working in you to deliver you from that sin by his power. Now, in sanctification in the present, you are being saved from the power of sin. This sanctification is progressive. The more that you use the weapons that Paul describes, the more you become Christ-like. You learn to respond to temptations the way that Christ did. You say, get thee behind me, Satan, just as Jesus said. Now, how did Jesus do that? Well, he did it by the power of the Spirit. And it's the same way that you do it. You are enabled because of your past justification to go on living every day in the present sanctification of the Spirit. Now, thirdly, we come to the point of the passage, and this is future salvation, which is our glorification. This is the salvation that we read of in Ephesians 6:17. This is the hope that lies before you. It is the future. Now, you don't have it now because this doesn't happen until you go to be with Christ. And whether it's in death or it's in the rapture, when Christ returns, you will be with Christ. This is the end of all of your struggles. And this is what happens when it's all over. This is when you are saved from the presence of sin. You are glorified and you are in the presence of the Father. Now, I've got more to say about this. So you just need to stay right there and keep on listening. This clears up our thinking about which salvation is Paul's subject in our text. In the past... You were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, you are being saved from sin's power. And in the future, you will be saved from the presence of sin. So the future aspect of salvation is where Paul is driving with the helmet of salvation. And he says to the Ephesians, don't give up. Your salvation is coming. This is the reason you must go on. You must patiently endure because of what is at the end of salvation. So you may be a weary, uh, a battle weary Christian. You may be tired. You may be discouraged. Well, the apostle tells you, don't give up hope. You will see the father. This is the reason of the hope that is in you. Now, when you put on the helmet of salvation, there is strength and encouragement to keep on fighting because great is your reward in heaven. Now, let me give you one other point of understanding on the relationship between present salvation and future salvation. Let's make sure that we don't miss this, that the Lord does not mean for us to look past this life and just endure it and get it over with. No, there is a purpose for this life. And he tells us that we have eternal life abiding in us now. See, eternal life begins when you trust Christ. You are living eternal life now. The difference is, is that your state will change. The externals will change. The old sinful flesh will be gone. But that eternal, 
perfect, justified spirit within you is alive for the glory of God now. Now, you must die for God to glorify you, but you don't need to die to glorify God. Now, let's go on. Number two is the hope of security. Why can I be happy even though I am a battle-weary Christian? Well, I can be happy because the results of the battle are assured. I can be happy because of my security in Christ. Nothing can take away my salvation. Now, as hard as Satan may try, as hard as he comes after me, as powerful as he may be, he cannot touch my salvation. Last month, I, I finished the Bible reading program for the year. And the last readings are in the book of Job. James said in James 5:11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Oh, you know the story of Job and you know what a man of faithful perseverance he was. After all that happened to him, he never cursed God. And his faithfulness was rewarded, wasn't it? We know the end of that story, that he got back more than was taken away. He expressed confidence in God. And perhaps a high point of his confidence is found in Job chapter 19, where he says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job didn't understand all the afflictions. He didn't understand what God was doing and why it was all allowed. But he did know this. Throw at me all you want, devil. I still shall see God. So God, or Job knew that he could trust God, and God would keep him secure. Now, you and I, I know how I feel. I don't think that I have as much faith as Job. But then again, I haven't been tested like Job. So how do I know I'm secure? How do I know this? Well, first, I have the witness of the word. I have the word to tell me so. Now, have I told you how important it is to know the word? I think maybe a time or two I've said something about that. It's God's word, in God's word, that I know that I am secure. Now, I wish I had time to preach today on, on these wonderful subjects of the perseverance and the preservation of God's people. There is so much in the word about security, it's impossible for us to miss. God's word is truth. It is the ultimate truth. It's the lasting truth. And God says that I am protected. I am secure in my salvation. Now, we're, we're pushing up against time today, so let me just give you two scriptures. I'm not going to try to go down the list of all the scriptures that there are in security. We'd stay here a long time if I did. Let me just give you a couple. From John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now there Jesus has given us an idea of double protection. 
I am held in the strong and powerful hand of Jesus. And that certainly is enough. But there's more than that here. I am doubly secure because clasped over the hand of Jesus is the hand of the Father. Our security is further expressed by the apostles in the word. I can't read this now, but you can read it later in Ephesians chapter 8. Ultimate security is found there. And you would want to start reading at about verse number 28, where it says that all things work together for good. And once you have that concept embedded in your mind, then you've got to try and figure out, well, how would losing my salvation work for my good? And it can't. And then you go on and you read verses 29 and 30 in which the apostle gives the unbreakable chain of salvation from our election in Christ before the foundation of the world to our final glorification in the eternal future. And then you go on and you read verses 31 through 34. And there it says, if Christ, if God was willing to give us Christ who is above all, won't he also give us everything lesser And that would be everything that goes with our salvation. And then we would read verses 35 through 39 where it excludes everything imaginable that could take our salvation away. You read it all and you will conclude that you have the witness of the infallible inerrant word that gives 100% assurance that faith in Christ is permanent and totally secure. Now thus far then we have the witness of two persons of the Godhead. We have the witness of the apostles in the word. Is there more? Well, yes, there is. There is the Holy Spirit, and he is the third person of the Godhead. So next we have the witness of the Spirit. We have hope because God gave his Spirit to live inside of us and to continually testify that we are his children, and his presence shows that he fully intends To redeem this body as he also redeemed the soul. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. And whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. The earnest, that is our guarantee. And so to battle weary Ephesians, he says, don't give up. Don't stop now because you know that you have the Holy Spirit in you. His presence in you shows the Father's full intention to never forsake you. He has placed his seal on you. And that seal is the Holy Spirit himself. He lives in you, which shows the value that he places on his children. Oh, but there is still more. We also have the witness of works. Now, I'm speaking here of God's work in us, which turns into our good works for him. Listen to Paul's statement in Philippians 2.13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God works in you. Now, you're not of this world, but... Of course, you are still in the world. And while you're here, God has work for you to do. You are God's instruments to do his work. Now, there are others that God will save. And there are none of them that will be saved without hearing 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God uses people just like you and me to give them the saving gospel. So this is the reason that we don't count this life as nothing. Despite all the troubles that we have, this life is not just something to get over with. This life is not loss. Now we have God's saving work to do. All these things work together to convince us of security. Now the devil loves to push insecurity. If he can keep you guessing, if he can keep you wondering, if he can make you doubtful, then you'll live a defeated life. And so this is the reason Paul says, put on the helmet of hope. Don't let the devil destroy your hope because your hope is the anchor of your soul. Hebrews says that God never lies. And we have a strong consolation to flee to our refuge and to hold on to that hope that is set before us. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Heaven is your hope. You are secure and steadfast in that hope. And now we close with another hope that's powerful. And this is the hope of the second coming. The hope of the second coming. And this is what we might call the plume on the helmet of salvation. It's the promise of the second coming. And those things that will occur in the second coming. This is what we build our hope on. Now the first of these that happens is the visible return of Christ. Now let's picture for a moment the disciples on the day of crucifixion. Hanging on the cross was their master and teacher. For three years they'd walked with him and talked with him. They trusted him. They genuinely believed that he was the Messiah. Their understanding of what he would do in the immediate future was clouded because they believed, as all Jews did, that when the Messiah came, he would overthrow all of their enemies and inaugurate his kingdom. But that wasn't to be. Jesus was taken. It appeared that he is. He was without power to stop his crucifixion on a Roman cross. And they listened as the Jews and the Romans taunted him. He saved others himself. He cannot save. If he be the Christ, let him come down from the cross. And the disciples heard that and they must have thought, why doesn't he do something? Well, he was doing something. They just didn't understand what it was. And then the one that they hoped would deliver them died. They put him in a tomb And for three days, there was no life. There was no sign. And they said, we hoped he was the one who would deliver Israel. But their hope was gone. But Sunday came and he arose. They rejoiced and their hope was restored. He said that he would come back to life and he did. And for 40 days after the resurrection, he made various appearances. But then those 40 days were over. And it wasn't the father's plan for him to stay. He came from heaven and he went back to heaven. Now, once again, the disciples felt abandoned. He was on his way up and they looked up and they thought they would be without him. But then the angels spoke and they said, don't lose hope. They said he will be back. This is not the end. This same Jesus will be back. And from that day until this, we hold out and we are told to look for and expect his return. The apostles went on preaching. They went on proclaiming salvation under intense persecution because every day they look for his coming. When you put on the helmet of hope, this is what it's for. 
It's for the blessed hope of Jesus' return. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why do we look for him? Because when he comes, our final salvation is here. And what happens when he comes? Well, there is another reason for hope, and that is the physical resurrection of our body. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we have proof that we will be raised from the dead. This is the crux of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, then there is no such thing as a physical resurrection. But because Christ is raised, the promise that we will be raised is true. Now, the Gentile Corinthians had been taught by their philosophers that the body is worthless. There is no resurrection of bodies. If there is a resurrection, it's only a spiritual resurrection. Paul gave overwhelming proof that they were wrong. The apostles saw Christ in a resurrected body. More than 500 witnesses saw him after he arose from the dead. Now, when Christ returns, this fact will be doubly confirmed because he will come back in the same body. And the bodies of all dead believers will come out of their graves. The helmet of salvation is the promise of final salvation. Body and spirit are redeemed. And yet there is still one more element in our hope because of the second coming. There is thirdly, the body's reunion with the spirit. See, the body doesn't just float up and drift off into space. The intention of the body for the body is to be reunited with the spirit. This body will be glorified and taken into heaven where it will be welded together again with our spirit. And then the body and the spirit will be in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. Now, I want you to notice what the Apostle John said. This is not coincidence. The scriptures fit perfectly together. And John taught the same as Paul about future salvation and how this future salvation is the impetus for our present sanctification. Remember in the beginning I said this this coming of Christ and going to be with him, final salvation is the carrot that's held out in front of us that we go after. That causes us to live a different life. Now, 1 John 3, he explains, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that had this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So do you see? Jesus is coming back, and when we see him, we will be made like him. That's the first part of this teaching. Then secondly, he says, and every man that has what? This hope, this hope in him, purifies himself, even as he is pure, as Christ is pure. Now, this hope then leads to sanctification, And sanctification is perseverance, and perseverance is Christian warfare. If you have this hope, you will continue to fight. God didn't save you for surrender. No, he saved you for victory. 
You will defeat Satan and you will be with Christ. And then John also said in verse 28 of 1 John 2, And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You must wear the helmet of salvation to stand unashamed before Christ when he returns. Put on the whole armor of God. And why this piece? Because it's your hope. It's the internal assurance that life struggles are worth it. Every problem, every heartache, every disappointment, all of it is temporary. There is a promise of a better day coming. And it will be worth it all when we've seen Jesus. Everything that we've been through this year... This battle that we've been fighting all year long, this will be worth it that we hold out faithful to see Jesus when he comes. So I'm telling you, Christians, don't lose hope. I don't know how long it'll be. None of us do. But we can't give up our hope. We put on this helmet of hope and we fight until Jesus comes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now the salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We think about that initial salvation. We are justified. We were justified when we believed in Christ. And that justification gives us the hope of our final salvation that we will be with Christ. We will see the Father and live in heaven for all of eternity. Lord, help us to understand as well that this Christian warfare, fighting these battles and being sanctified is the way that we prove our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the way that we assure ourselves even that because we hold on that we know that we will one day see Christ. And Lord, help us to understand as well that holding out faithful is the way that we are sanctified to become like Christ. We can't have Christians give up. We can't have church members that fall by the wayside during this very, very difficult time. No, we need to keep our ears peeled. We need to be listening all the time. We need to be looking for that announcement that we can get back to church. And then we will steadfastly think about being in the presence of of your people, and then finally in the presence of God. Help us, Lord, to hold out that hope and not to give up. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We pray for your people this week, that they will be strong even as we hear more bad news, bad news compiled on top of bad news, it seems. But we know there is victory coming. There is a better day coming. Help us to have hope as the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Bless us now, Lord. Be with your people. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'd like to give you a final benediction. This is in Philippians chapter 3. And this is just further encouragement by the apostle that we will be glorified in our final salvation when Christ returns. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 17, brethren... Be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I've told you often and I'll tell you even weeping that they are the enemies 
of the cross of Christ. You know, that, that's, a, that's a terrible thing, position to be in, to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. And that's the way a person who falls out and falls by the wayside is described. You're not a friend of Christ. What Jesus said in John chapter 15 that we read earlier is that his friends obey his commandments. They abide in the vine. He says in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. It's the earthly things that cause us to fall out, isn't it? For our conversation, our way of life is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will he do? Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That is the glorification that comes at the end. That is our final salvation. And that is the hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation that we put on. Have a great week. Uh, Keep praying for our church. Pray for our people. Pray that we will be back in church soon. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.